So, Mary, you finished the last episode promising us another debate this week. So that's quite a lot to live up to. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know what happened. So anyone who listened to last week's episode, I accidentally promised a debate instead of saying just listen to next week's episode. It's really hard to say the right words all the time, Dan. <laughs> so, but yeah, there we go. I guess it's probably not a bad episode to have promised a debate, though, given that today is all about making decisions. Indeed. And we're talking about how that happens in a virtual remote world that we're in. We're all surrounded by decisions that we're making remotely all the time now. So looking forward to getting into that. Yeah, a virtual debate. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So you've all probably heard of Groupthink, but have you heard of Zoomthink? Well, to get into the whole discussion of that today, we are delighted to be joined for the second time by Zoe Birdo. Zoe, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me back. So Zoe, I know you gave a quick overview of your role at LCP in our last session, but could you just give a very, very quick recap? And I guess particularly the relevance of you being here for this discussion on ZoomThink. So I do wear a couple of different hats at LCP. My sort of day-to-day job is as a consultant in our pensions actuarial department. I work a lot with trustees and corporates on managing their pension schemes. I also do a lot of work with behavioral biases and work with different groups on groupthink and kind of learning more about behavioral biases and how they might impact group decision making. Fantastic. Well, we're certainly going to get into that, aren't we, in a minute. But just on the lighter hearted stuff for a second, I think last we spoke, you were telling us about your interest in a singing group that you're part of, the Pink Singers. So just thought we should catch up, find out how that singing group has been getting on in lockdown, because obviously it's been tough for all sorts of groups. But how have you been getting on? Really well. I think it took a little bit of time to find our feet. I think it's really important. So Pink Singers are Europe's longest running LGBT choir and is a really important part of the community, an important kind of source of support for a lot of our members. So it was really important that we kind of kept the momentum up and kept that line of support open. So we've moved to virtual rehearsals. We've done some really cool virtual collaborations. Fantastic. A bit different, but still going strong. Nice. What sort of stuff have you released recently? We've just done a video for Together and Electric Dreams which is really cool. It's on YouTube. It was a lot of fun. Got to dress up in some fun 80s outfits and sing together, albeit a bit further than normal. But really cool that some former Pink singers from all over the world got to join us for that. So some cool opportunities. Amazing. And we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Just quickly, so Together in Electric Dreams, is there a relevance to it being that song? Is that because we're all sort of working and chatting electronically? Or is that just, am I reading too much into that? (laughs) Well, luckily, it was part of our repertoire. Okay. Before lockdown, we actually sang it in a concert just before everything kicked off early last year. So it was a song we were familiar with, but a cool opportunity. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, continuing the sort of theme then, why don't we take a quick step back and reprise some of the general key issues with groupthink? I mean, obviously, you you talked about it before when you were on the podcast sort of a few months ago, and we'll link to that in the show notes so people can go back and have a little think. But why don't you just quickly summarize for us some of the common issues you see with groups making decisions? Yeah, I think that at a high level, we like to think that groups make us better 
decision makers. We should kind of collectively, with all of our knowledge and experience, be able to reach better outcomes, better conclusions, identify more risks. But that's not always what happens in practice. Sometimes groups become overconfident in their decision-making abilities, and I think that can sometimes hold us back. So I guess in terms of bringing the conversation forward to today, are there any specific sort of, I guess, features of groupthink that you think are particularly relevant to discuss in a virtual setting? We talked last time about self-censorship and how it can be hard for people to speak up and challenge either the group leader or kind of group consensus on something. And I think that that can be tough in a virtual world because you really have to actively speak up in order to kind of be heard. I think a lot of us are tired in those long virtual meetings. It can be hard to stay focused, stay on task. Sometimes we do have dominant personalities who can take up the screen, I guess, so to say. And I think that that can be more challenging. I'm sure we'll get onto it, but I think that there are some more opportunities that we have to challenge that as well. So I guess the idea of conflict feeling uncomfortable, which potentially is exacerbated in a virtual world, but that idea of conflict being a key risk when we're thinking about groupthink. Yeah, I think it's a time where everybody wants to get along. We recognize that people are going through a lot in their own lives, some of the things that we'll know about and some that we won't. And I think that there's definitely that kind of group cohesion that people are really trying to achieve at the moment. And that's one of the big risk factors for groupthink. So we do need to be aware of that. We definitely talked about conformity last time quite a lot. Remember, you made some really good points about that. And then, yeah, that point about conflict, I think what you were saying before was that there was sort of good and bad types of conflict, as in in a group decision-making setting, you want a certain amount of conflict to challenge views and make sure people are sort of not being too biased, but obviously the wrong type of conflict when that becomes sort of too personal or too relational or existential is kind of destabilizing. So that I think you sort of laid those down as some of the key issues you see with groups. Yeah, definitely. I think what you're touching on there is really focusing on task conflict which can be a really positive thing that can be productive conflict that means that we can challenge each other in a productive way and make sure that we are aiming for the best outcome, which I think especially in this environment where it's hard to kind of read the room, read how other people are feeling, can quickly bridge that gap into relationship conflict or at least sort of perceived relationship conflict. And that can take away from that focus on that sort of productive energy. My final point perhaps to bring out on reprising the general issues with groupthink we talked about before. You spoke a lot about the idea of hidden information. Do you want to just expand on that quickly, what you mean by that in a group decision-making setting? There's sort of hidden information in terms of people not speaking up and sharing their own experiences or sharing information that might be relevant. But I think that more often it might be information that someone doesn't think is hidden. They think it's something that everyone knows. Oh, well, everyone must know that. And if nobody else is raising it, then I don't want to be the one to sort of throw that spanner in the works. So I think it's that, again, perceived hidden information. People are hesitant to share things that could cause conflict. And I suppose thinking about that in a face-to-face versus virtual context, you can sort of picture in a face-to-face meeting someone having the courage to say, and just to be clear, we all agree this, right? Whereas that sort of comment is much more difficult, I think, to do in a virtual setting. And I guess on hidden information, I guess almost the angle that I've been considering recently and since we did our previous episode on Rebel Ideas, the book review, because obviously what we were talking about in Rebel Ideas was the idea that 
having different people with diverse views and diverse opinions can lead to better decision making or better risk management, that sort of thing. And I guess squaring that with this conversation, it's the point about not hiding that information, making sure all of the sort of cards are on the table, having the sort of diverse opinions, but also being open enough that you can share those opinions. And that does lead to better decisions rather than some of the risks that we'll come on to talk about today, specifically about making those decisions. I think that's right. I think it's also just as important that people are heard. So I think the first step is making that information public or making sure that people are voicing their concerns or opinion, sharing the information that they have. But it's really important to avoid things like scapegoating, which I think also comes into that where we can discount people, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so just on that note, you've just mentioned a couple of things, I guess, which are almost kind of best practice in terms of decision making. Can we just go through a really quick recap on some of the sort of elements of good decision making that help us to combat these risks? So good decision making really needs to be collaborative. I think that it can be easy to be lulled into a false sense of security when everyone seems to kind of agree at the outset and a decision is taken with very little conflict. It's easy to think that everyone agrees, everybody's on board. And actually, that's really rarely the case. I think sometimes a bit of positive conflict, that's a sort of constructive discussion, is really showing that people are passionate about it, that they have an opinion, they're challenging each other's ideas. So I think a little bit of conflict, kind of in quotation marks, if you will, is a sign of a good discussion a good decision-making process. I think having that diverse group is important, particularly diversity of thought and way of approaching problems. But diversity in lived experiences is the only way that you really achieve that. So you do need people around the table who have different experiences, who approach problems from different ways, think about problems differently, and can share kind of their own insights, experiences, One of the key things you said there was around the decision-making process. And I suppose that's one of the key points, isn't it? Thinking about it as a process and trying to follow that sort of through. So what are some of the elements you'd pick out of a good process aside from the more kind of relational side of it? I've been asked a couple of times by trustee boards if I can provide a checklist on avoiding behavioral biases. And I think although the intention there is really positive, sometimes by trying to kind of put that decision-making process into a good practice box. You're just introducing other biases. It can definitely make you a bit more overconfident (laughs) that you're doing the right thing. So a little bit of caution there in terms of what a process looks like. I think that making sure that it is organic is important, making sure that it doesn't just boil down to a checklist. But there definitely are elements to a good decision-making process that we can pick out. I think making sure that everyone involved is aware of the biases that they have, that they've had some training on behavioral biases, some training on groupthink, making sure that there are some independent people around the table. Neutral facilitation is one of the key ones. So whoever is chairing or facilitating the discussion has a huge role to play, not only in avoiding setting anchors and things, but making sure that everyone has the opportunity to voice their opinions and concerns. I think making sure that you have enough time to make a decision is a really important element, making sure that people have time to go away and think about it, ask questions. Anytime you have a really time-pressured decision-making process, which isn't always avoidable, but that can be a big red flag that you might have some biases coming into play. 
There's a good piece of research out recently that I know you're aware of as well from the Institute of Actuaries Research Group, I think, that went through quite a comprehensive look at biases in trustee making with a little bit of empirical evidence, which we link to that in the show notes. But that sort of emphasized a lot of these points, I think, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good one. We could probably do a whole episode <laughs> just on that. But I think the key point to draw out there is that trustees are just as biased as other people, that how we present questions is really important, the order of questions, how things are framed. And even if you have training and a lot of experience in an area, it doesn't mean that you're immune to those biases. And I think sometimes that overconfidence can come in and actually exacerbate some of these things. Definitely. Honestly, I think that's one of the biggest issues in our industry is that people are a bit afraid to admit they might be biased because they're perceived as professionals. And whether that's a trustee or whether it's an advisor or an asset manager or anyone, this is our job. And I think it's almost this sense of, well, God, I shouldn't be biased then if it's my job kind of thing. It means that there's a lack of recognition of those issues. But of course, we're all biased. We're all humans, aren't we? It's kind of silly to think that we can somehow train that away. I think there's the perception point. And then there's just the kind of assumption that if someone is in maybe more in a more analytical field, for example, that they don't approach problems from an emotional perspective. And really in practice, that's not the case. And sometimes people can overanalyze themselves into a very biased position. So it's just as important that we're talking about these things in this area. So thinking about, I guess, all of these issues in a virtual world, which risks do you think are most prevalent when we're talking about virtual worlds? You mentioned the kind of speaking up and maybe that's more difficult in a virtual world. Are there any other sort of features that you think are particularly risk factors at the moment? I mentioned it briefly, but I think focus is a big one. I think our tendency is to, when we question something, we often question ourselves. So we think, oh, well, maybe I didn't hear that right. Or maybe there's some information that I'm missing or everyone else knows better than I do. And that's why I have this concern that no one else has raised. And I think that when we're, despite the best of intentions, it is distracting sometimes being at home. You have the front doorbell ring, you have pets or kids running around, maybe your internet connection isn't great. It's more likely that you might miss a little piece of conversation. And then we can kind of cling on to that as why we think we've misunderstood something or why we don't agree. And we don't want to look like we weren't paying attention. We don't want to look like we misunderstood something. So it's just easier not to say anything at all. We should have mentioned this at the start, I suppose. So Zoe, you did a recent piece in our Vista magazine on exactly this subject, which we'll link to in the show notes. One of the points in that that I found really interesting was the idea that, so being at home means you're sitting in a meeting and there's a term that you don't understand and you can Google it because you're sitting at your desk and no one's going to notice you Google it. And maybe that gives you a bit more sort of confidence and a bit more information. But obviously the other side to that is what you exactly just said, that actually there's so many other distractions. I know for me, I'm sitting in a meeting and an email pops in and it's really, really difficult not to read that email. And then you've missed 30 seconds of the meeting. And either you don't make your point because you're worried it was just made and you missed it, or you don't make your point because you think you might have missed some information that meant you shouldn't have made your point. So I guess there's different angles to this kind of virtual world, isn't there? Some potentially more positive, but the big risk that you just mentioned. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a balance to be struck. I do think there's a lot of opportunity in being able to reassure yourself that you've fact-checked something, give yourself the confidence to speak up. But again, these virtual meetings can move very quickly and you don't want to miss anything, but also sometimes the moment has just moved on. You miss that kind of second or two to break in. 
Exactly. I seem to find that a lot. I don't know why that is, but with virtual meetings, it feels that it runs on a more linear kind of path. And yeah, like you say, as soon as you miss that opportunity, the train has moved on and just feels weird to take it back. Whereas in person, somehow the discussion can swirl in a way that it doesn't when you're online. I can't quite put it any sort of more tangibly than that, but that's definitely been my experience as well. Yeah, I think part of it is just that element of sort of physicality, being able to catch someone's eye. They know that you have something to say because you've maybe leaned forward a bit. You've kind of made a little nod. You're made sure that you're seen and you just can't do that. <laughs> jumping <laughs> up and down in your seat, maybe like I am now. For the listeners, in case you heard a funny sound then, yeah, Dan's jumping up and down in his seat. <laughs> I would really encourage people to use things like the raise hand functionality that a lot of these online platforms have used the chats and things. And I think that's also the role of a good facilitator to recognize that it is harder for people to kind of find those gaps in conversation, find that time to raise something and really make sure that they're making it clear that it's encouraged, even if it means kind of maybe speaking over someone or doing something potentially distracting to get attention. I think it is really important. It's funny, isn't it? Because I guess we probably fall on both sides of that. So some meetings, I'm kind of a facilitator. Some meetings, I'm a participant. And certainly when I've been a facilitator in virtual meetings, you're really happy when people use the raise hand function because half the time you just don't know where people are on something. Like, are they just radically in agreement and we can move on quickly? Or are they just keeping quiet because they're like, oh my God, I couldn't disagree more about this, but I just don't want to have an argument sort of thing. Or So it's just a relief when someone chips in or gives you a reason to sort of shut up and hand it over to someone else for a little bit. But it's quite hard to find those otherwise, especially if the meeting's over a certain size, I find often the facilitator might say any questions. And it's in that moment where everyone's trying to get off mutes, often it moves on, doesn't it? It's difficult. Yeah. Or you don't want to be the first one to jump in or you think someone else is going to. So you're kind of waiting for that other person to say something first. And by the time you've kind of gotten yourself together and come off mute and gone to say something, then everything's moved on. Great. Okay. On to the next thing. And you've missed the chance. It just takes a little bit longer, doesn't it? That when you're kind of in person and can kind of say, oh, yep, right away. And you don't have to think too much about it. And it is that, I guess we've just sort of touched on it, but the ability to be able to read a room, which I, for me anyway, I find that really vital in giving advice and making sure that there's a proper discussion about a decision is glancing around the room and checking whether there's some very confused looking faces or not. And in a Zoom or Teams world, so firstly, if I'm sharing a presentation, I can't really see anyone's faces because they get so small on my screen. But also, I don't know about you, but I've had a few meetings where for bandwidth issues, we've been all asked to turn our videos off. And I just find that so, so difficult. I guess it's just back to what conference calls would have been like previously. But obviously, for important decisions, we would make sure we were meeting in person. I think that's a good distinction to make. If you would find a conference call challenging, and that wouldn't be how you would approach a decision kind of pre-lockdown, then things like video or smaller groups are things to think about. I find it really difficult when everyone's videos are off. You don't know if you've lost everyone. Maybe your connection's gone. You don't even know sometimes if anyone is still there or still listening. And Speaking I think into the be, abyss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I could have, I don't know, something in the background or nobody's actually paying attention to me. Or has my cat walked in the back of the room and everybody's looking at the cat? You just don't know. It sort of speaks to another point we've talked about a little bit, which is about this transactional versus relational kind of nature of things like a conference call I think to me that feels very transactional and it can work in certain situations if you've got a quick update you need to give a team if you've got a series of instructions you need to give out in our world maybe if you're reading through a performance report markets did this that the other managers did this and that that can sort of work 
but that's sort of tra- quite transactional, isn't it? Whereas if you're talking about a real tricky group decision, which has consequences going to matter, be long lasting, that's not the way it works, is it? And I guess that's what we're learning. That's when reading the room comes in. You want to know who's sort of got little objections. You want to give them chance to air them, let the discussion circle around a bit. And that's where it can struggle a bit, I think. I do think it's important to pick up, though, that a lot of the big decisions that we make don't happen all at once. It's the small discussions that we have at subsequent meetings, maybe building up to a direction of travel that are just as important as the big meeting that happens a year later to decide, well, do we transact or not? Is it green light or not? Those big decisions, I think we do tend to be pretty good at making sure that, or at least trying to make sure that the environment is right to have those in. I think losing the informal conversation around the journey plan to get there (laughs) is really where I think we're going to find a lot of these biases have come into play because we don't like to stop a decision once we're kind of already on the path. And we talked about that last time I was on the podcast. People don't like to waste time or be seen to waste time. So I think it is a big risk that we will get kind of far down the line with projects or with kind of journey plans for things before we realize that we've actively made a decision to get there. So is that where us, our role as advisors really comes to the fore? Because we need to make it very clear if we're having discussions with our clients about decisions, even if this is a sort of precursor to a decision, we need to make it very clear that this is a session which enables you to make a decision at the next meeting. But in forming views about that idea, they are making decisions themselves in that process, if you like, so that by the time there's a decision, you're almost just rubber stamping a general feeling everyone's got to because they understand the issue well enough that they've all got their own conclusions and you can have a proper debate. But actually, decision making starts right at the very first point. Yeah. And so we should be encouraging open discussion and debate and challenge and that constructive conflict at every stage, not just at the decision making point. Exactly. I think you're getting to a key point, aren't we, that maybe we're saying that actually moving away from this idea of these infrequent big bang meetings where all these big decisions get sort of signed in stone kind of thing is not the way forward. And that maybe a more ongoing collaborative sequence of meetings where discussion can happen more frequently to build up to something is actually a better structure for it in this kind of remote virtual world. So rather than just mapping across the approaches and processes we had when we could meet personally, actually think about how we could reimagine it to better suit the world we're in. And maybe that ongoing thing would be a key part of that if we were to think about it that way. Exactly. And I think creating as many opportunities as possible, whether those be formal or informal, for people to raise concerns and questions along the way. I think this starts sort of getting to the point as well about, I guess, in a pre-lockdown world, you'd often have those big bang meetings, they'd last eight hours. I don't know how we all did it. Eight hours of meeting sounds horrendous these days. But you'd have that partly because people were traveling to the meeting and you'd just make sure everyone was there in the room for the whole time. Of course, in a virtual world, you could have little and often meetings and you could also separate, think of using the example of a trustee group making decisions about a pension scheme. There are some quite distinct sections within those meetings usually, which sometimes require quite different areas of focus and also different expertise. So actually splitting those into specific focus sessions maybe just helps with the environment of challenging each other on that specific topic, but also helps with focus. And creating things like informal coffee breaks as part of the meetings, making sure that people have breaks, they have time to go away and think about something. I'm a big fan of kind of splitting out 
longer, say, trustee meetings that might have gone for eight hours and breaking them into two-hour chunks once a week, once every few weeks. I think it's a lot less daunting. But then you have the challenge that people might miss some of them and all these things have to be balanced. The thing about breaks is a really good point. I haven't seen it done well that many times. I mean, the the best you often get is a sort of a two and a half minute break, just about enough time for me to run, make myself a coffee, have a bathroom break sort of thing, get back in time is often the way it works, isn't it? But yeah, wouldn't it be lovely if we did sort of more informal coffee breaks where we could just have a chit chat to people virtually? That would be nice. Yeah, I think there were a lot of opportunities around the holidays where people took the time to kind of schedule in those informal chats or stay and have a drink after a meeting virtually. And I think it's important that we continue to do that, even though it's not holiday time anymore. That's a good point, actually. It reminds me, but going back to the, the Institute of Actuaries paper, it kind of talked in there a little bit about how the role of some of the informal phases of meetings in actually making decisions. And I think it was talked slightly negatively about them, particularly in saying, you know, some cases decision might kind of get made in the pub sort of thing the night before or after a meeting. It's probably maybe a slightly extreme example, but you can see how that might happen. And that's probably bad because it's going to be exclusionary. Not everyone wants to go to a pub. Not everyone likes going to pubs. So not everyone will be there. That's not great, but we shouldn't just completely dismiss that because like you're saying, you're building relationships. There's informality, something intangible to it that is actually good. So we kind of need to somehow bring it back or replace it somehow. Dan, I think that's a fantastic point to raise. When I think of kind of informal opportunities to raise concerns and things, I'm more focused on making sure that people have the opportunity to ask those questions that they might be afraid to ask in a group setting. I think that it is very challenging then to avoid that kind of club mentality, isn't it, of kind of making decisions down at the pub or kind of having side agreements or, oh, well, so-and-so discussed this yesterday. They've talked it all out. We don't really need to think about it too much harder now. So I think things like informal access to advisors is really important, making sure that especially if there is a gap in knowledge or experience on the board, that especially those who might not be as confident have those opportunities to feedback less formally. But yeah, no, that's a really good warning. I mean, this is going to sound like a really random one, but what about the fact that half the time we're sat here in our slippers and tracksuit bottoms and, I don't know, maybe even pajamas sort of thing? I mean, can that influence the way decisions are being made and the way these discussions go down? I hope so. I think that it's a good thing to kind of break down some of those barriers. We are all just people. And I think that it's important, especially where you have maybe differences in seniority within a group or experienced to kind of be able to build that level of empathy and understanding. On the other side, when you have a big decision, sometimes getting dressed up and going and traveling someplace to make that kind of puts that weight on it, that it is something that's big and important and needs a lot of thought and focus. Whereas when we're kind of just making these decisions at our kitchen table or in our home office while we're homeschooling at the same time or have the laundry in or having all these other things going on, can sometimes, I think, take away from that. I hope that that can help people build confidence and maybe take away some of the biases that come from intense pressure that can make us do really irrational things when we feel like a decision is really, really pressured. But I think there's probably pros and cons. Responsibility is a double-edged sword there. Kind of yeah. saying, I think, can be good and bad. So Zoe, as we've gone through today's chat, you've given us some really, really helpful tips for tackling the risks, I guess, of Zoom Think. But just to keep them all in one place, do you want to just run through some kind of top tips for remote meetings? So I think starting with 
kind of encouraging more informal time. Dan did point out some of the risks with that. So making sure that that's done in a way to build people's confidence in particular, I think is a great thing. Doing more one-to-one catch-ups. So making sure that decision makers and stakeholders have access to advisors and resources, try to break down big decisions into smaller chunks and make sure that you're aware that that's what's happening. So you don't accidentally end up making a decision because you've kind of gone along a path that you didn't realize you were on. So really encouraging sort of debate and constructive conflict within the group from day one, as soon as the topic is introduced. Really focus on time management and pacings of meetings, take breaks, make sure that people don't feel too pressured for time. We can do that by kind of unbundling the content of longer meetings. So pulling out things like training, using kind of fixed resources, maybe doing some videos or doing some presentations that you can share ahead of time. I would say using the functionality that exists in a lot of these online platforms. So using the chat function, using the raise hand function, a big challenge for chairs or people who are facilitating discussions to really encourage people to speak up and leave longer than you think in terms of kind of silence breaks in the conversation, really encourage people to speak up, even if it's a positive affirmation as opposed to a question or a concern, say. And I guess of that list or of any of the things that we discussed today, Zoe, what is the sort of one thing that you want listeners to take away? I think it's recognizing that it's not a perfect science and we're all still learning. So being open to having things evolve, I think it's a really good opportunity to have broken the status quo with how we run meetings. And there's a lot of good opportunities that we have here. I think trying to replicate what we did in person in a virtual environment isn't really the way to go. I think that in the short term, in a lot of ways, it was necessary because what else were we going to do? There was a lot going on. Now that we have a little bit more time to kind of sit with it, I think it's okay to break the mold and it's okay to get it wrong. So being open to new things, I think. Great. Cool. That's great. And what would you say is, do you think is one of the most underappreciated things about this whole area in general? It's a good one. I think a lot of it's underappreciated. (laughs) (laughs) The whole area. (laughs) I think maybe how biased we all are. I think it's really easy to talk about biases in the context of other people and really admitting and understanding why we all have biases there are challenges that we all have in terms of our own decision making, and we're all irrational a lot of the time. <laughs> and I think admitting that is a good starting place and one that is hard to do. A good but very difficult starting place. And Zoe, just before we wrap this up, have you got any recommendations for the listeners? I do. So last time I recommended a podcast called Hidden Brain, which I would recommend again. And actually, someone who was on a recent episode, his name's Adam Grant. He's written a book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. I'd really recommend it. I haven't actually finished the book myself um, about halfway through, but it's really interesting commentary on kind of why we find it difficult to challenge ourselves and kind of change your own views. And actually on that episode, I'd recommend that episode in particular. They have a really good discussion about this relationship conflict versus task conflict and how we can really make our conflict more constructive. I listened to that one as well. That was a really good episode. We'll put the link in. Well worth listening to. Well, Zoe, that's been another fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. 
Thanks, Zoe. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.